there, there's no question in my mind that for the next month, we're going to really uh, get below the dirt in terms of excavating uh, what God intends for us as Christians, what he means uh, when he calls us to be the church, what we're to be about in terms of mission, vision, and values. And, and I know that we're going somewhere good for the next several weeks because all week long, our three-week-old has slept really well. She's been going in like four, even five-hour increments throughout the night. And last night, she turned into a velociraptor about every hour and a half, um, depriving me of sleep horrifically so that coming into this morning, uh, it's going to be interesting, but uh, we will not be deterred. This is going to be good stuff. And so we do launch a new series this week entitled Why Church. We'll be in this series for the next four weeks. And the hope is that uh, we're going to unpack what is and what we hope continues to be the DNA of Cross Point Peachtree City, the culture that we're trying to create here as a church in this community. And so next week, we're going to look at the value of the gospel. Um, my hope is to answer a few questions that I'm, I'm not sure many of us know how to answer, uh, to be honest with you. Questions like, how is the gospel good news to you today? How is the gospel more than just an entry ramp onto the highway of Christianity that you leave behind for Christianity 102, for lack of better terms? Um, we want to deal with issues like continually asking Jesus into our hearts. If you've grown up in the Bible Belt, you've probably prayed some sort of prayer 18 times along the way because you just weren't sure. And so we want to engage that type of culture that's been created. How does the gospel come to bear on that? As well as the, the issue of easy believism, this idea that I prayed a prayer, uh, I made a decision for Jesus, and so now I'm just good to go. I can coast until the day I die. So we want to address some things like that next week as we unpack this value of the gospel. And then two weeks from now, uh, we're going to look at uh, the value of community. We'll be looking at this Christian buzzword that we throw around known as community. Or maybe you've heard it unpacked as doing life together. What does that even mean? That's, that's very nebulous language. Can we ground that? What do we mean by that when we throw that word around? Why is it that you and I long to know people and to be known, and yet at the same time that terrifies our souls? Why does that tension exist within us? What are some of the barriers to community in your own life, in my life? We'll, we'll unpack some of those things. What are the characteristics of gospel-centered community? How do we define that um, as being distinct and different from community in general? These are just a few questions that we'll look at two weeks from now. And then we'll close out this series by looking at another buzzword, this Christian buzzword word of mission. What do we mean uh, when we, we say we want to be a missional people? Is our understanding of the mission of God accurate or is it faulty? How can we know if we're a friend of sinners like Jesus? These are some of the things that we'll look at in week three as we unpack the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, and the how of Christian mission. But before diving into the next three weeks, we, we've got to, I use this analogy a lot, we've got to get in the plane and we've got to get really high off the ground. We've got to get to a high altitude um, in order to understand why we should care about the gospel of God, the community of God, and the mission of God. We have to address the far bigger question looming over us as human beings this morning. That question is this, the question that begs to be answered. Why do you and I exist? Why are we here? What's our purpose? What's the point of all of this? Now, we're talking about a philosophical question regarding human existence and purpose this morning. The good news is that as a church, we're not afraid of those kinds of questions. Um, the bad news is you can't just halfway engage your mind this morning. You can't just come in this morning and, and just kind of like a drone, turn your, your mind on halfway and expect to engage well with respect to, to where we're going. And so I need your help. 
I either need you, if you have a cup of coffee in hand, to go ahead and take a big gulp now, or if you need a cup of coffee, uh, it will not be socially awkward for you to get up out of your seat and just go back to, to the coffee area right now. Get your fuel, whatever you need to do to engage your mind in where we're going. I'm calling you um, as the people of God to attempt to love the Lord your God with all of your mind this morning as best you possibly can by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be all over the Bible this morning as we attempt to answer the question up on the screen, why do we exist? Um, But as a springboard for where we're going, you can open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 23 this morning. That's where we'll be in the first three verses in particular. As you're flipping there, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one under one of the seats in front of you. Um, There should be a Bible nearby, and you can flip open to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you. That's our gift to you for free. It's yours. As you're flipping there, in order to answer questions like, why do you and I exist? Why are we here? Do we have a purpose? In order to answer questions like these, we we actually have to go up in the sky to an even higher altitude than uh, human existence and purpose and consider the ultimate question in all of the universe, which is this. What is the mission of God? What is God doing? What is God up to in, in all of this? as he's created, as he's unfolded human history. Now, let me be very clear here. What this is communicating is that I'm coming from a very theistic uh, perspective and bent. I'm presupposing that there is a God, and I'm presupposing um, specifically that it's the triune God of the Bible. And so the goal of this series is not necessarily to answer philosophical questions for atheists and agnostics. Um, I'm happy to engage that. I'm not scared of those types of questions. So if you want to meet and talk about that, if that's where you are, we can talk about the cosmological argument for the existence of God, the teleological argument for the existence of God, the ontological argument for the existence of God, the moral argument for the existence of God, and so forth and so on. We can meet up. We can engage those things. But for the purpose of this series, I'm coming at this thing like St. Augustine would have, like St. Anselm of Canterbury, who who argued that Christianity is faith-seeking understanding. And so we come in and we, we presuppose faith as Christians, and now we seek to understand and build on what we come in faith and believe. That's what we're, we're seeking as we come together over the next four weeks. And so I am presupposing there is a God, and in fact, that God is the God of the Scriptures. And so if you're with me in that, we can, we can move on. In order to, to properly understand the purpose of the creation of creatures like you and me, it makes sense that we would have to properly understand the purpose of the creator who made us in the first, right? And so some believe that the answer to that question is very man-centered. The the ultimate mission of God in the universe is to save me. That God saving me is the ultimate point, that I'm ultimately the center. I am the point. I'm ultimately what God is after. And don't get me wrong, God is for you. He loves you. He's rescued you. He provides for you. He cares deeply for you. The love of God is absolute folly. That God would would redeem us and save us and adopt us into his family is quite absurd when you think about it. That God loves us with reckless abandon. And and this is not to negate that. But I want to argue this morning that the motivation behind all of that is bigger than you and me. What is the mission of God? What is God doing? What is God ultimately about? This is my thesis for the morning. The ultimate aim of God is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. Let me say that again. The ultimate aim of God is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself 
forever. Now, right now, there's some people in the room, I'm guessing, who are probably bristling a little bit. Maybe you've grown up in a very anthropocentric kind of Christianity, a man-centered Christian subculture that would argue that you and I sit at the center of everything. And so what I'm arguing for is a very theocentric worldview this morning, a very God-centered worldview. I remember when I was in college, I went to a passion conference. Some of you maybe have attended a passion conference along the way if you're in my generation or younger. And uh, John Piper, who I quote often, a pastor up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, was one of the speakers at this conference along with a few others. And I remember walking away from a particular message that he spoke on the the God-centeredness of God. And I remember walking through the halls with my friends as we exited the auditorium, and many of them were saying, well, I can't wait for Louis Giglio because that dude talked way over my head, and I didn't like him. And at least Louis Giglio does illustrations and will tell stories about life and will kind of connect the dots in a way that's relevant for me. Or Beth Moore, she gives a really good, like, woman's perspective. So I'm really, I'm I'm chomping at the bit for her, and I'm walking through the halls going, are you kidding me? Like, for 20-something years of my life, I've heard consistently the unpacking of a God that I could store in my pocket. That's how small God was to me. And, and yet I engaged in, in this message that resonated with me and actually caused me to say for the first time in my life, I don't think I can box this God in. And I think what that therefore means is that I actually have to bend my knee in submission to him as king. That's my hope this morning. That's my hope as we unpack this series is that uh, God would shift us from this man-centered theology and worldview to a more Christocentric, theocentric, God-centered worldview that would cause us to bend our knee to the very king of the universe who created us with great purpose so that we might be a part of his very mission. Again, that sounds very appalling to some people. It sounds a a bit self-centered of God, doesn't it? That the ultimate aim of God would be to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. So I want to go to the scriptures this morning, and then I want to just philosophically attack some objections that I think might exist um, if you're bristling a little bit at this point in this morning's message. I would submit to, to you this, that if the ultimate aim of God was not to glorify God and enjoy himself forever, then he would not be God. He would actually be an idolater. At that point, think about it. If God ultimately glorifies anyone or anything other than himself, whatever it is that he glorifies outside of himself is ultimately God, right? That if God ultimately enjoys or delights in anything other than himself, then whatever that is that he's focused on and enjoying and delighting as ultimate is God at that point. That ultimately, you just follow that trail of breadcrumbs from, from one thing or person to the next who keeps looking beyond themselves until you get to someone or something that says, I can't go beyond me. I'm the most supreme being in all the universe. I'm the most preeminent being in all of the universe. I'm the most majestic being in all of the universe, and therefore I can't go beyond myself in terms of making something else ultimate. When you get there, you've actually gotten to God. That the fact that God would say, I must enjoy myself, I must glorify myself, is actually an authenticating of his very deity. But for him to be about anything or anyone other than himself as the center, as ultimate, would be to disauthenticate his deity. And so God, because he's truly God, is on a mission to enjoy himself and glorify himself forever. And so if that's true... And I'm going to argue for that momentarily. If that's true, then the purpose why you and I exist would actually connect and align 
with God's purpose and mission in the universe. So that I would argue that the chief end of man, of you and me, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever as well. And in fact, that's the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That you and I are invited to spend our lives for the glory of God, which is what we were designed for all along. Now, Again, I'm debunking a massive viewpoint within Christian evangelicalism this morning. I'm debunking the idea that we human beings are ultimately the point, that we human beings are ultimately the center of the universe. And so if your theology is highly man-centered, let me dive into the scriptures to try to address where I'm even pulling this from. Does the Bible teach the God-centeredness of God? That God is on a relentless pursuit of self-glorification. And I believe the answer is yes. If you look at Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3, this is a verse that many of us are familiar with. Um, It's a verse that uh, the the words of which have actually made uh, their way into lines of films, into songs that have been written. Perhaps you've seen these verses on the side of a coffee cup, maybe cross-stitched at your grandmother's house hanging on a wall. These are very popular verses. Look at what they say. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Now, many look at a passage like this and they go, See? We're the point. God leads us. He restores us. He shepherds us. He's for us. In fact, you see the pronouns me and my several times in these three verses. And all of that is true. Again, don't don't misconstrue what I'm saying this morning. I'm not saying that God doesn't deeply love you and I with absolute reckless abandon. In fact, we're going to talk about that momentarily, how we see that in the cross of Jesus Christ. But what I'm arguing this morning is that my salvation is, that your salvation is ultimately subservient to God's glory. That my salvation and your salvation is a means by which God might glorify himself. That going back to these verses, the motive is actually found in the last four words of verse 3. The last four words of verse 3 provide us with motive. Why does God shepherd us? Why does he restore us? Why does he lead and care for us? Answer, for his name's sake. He does all of these things ultimately for the purpose of self-glorification so that he might be made much of. Now, again, some might be skeptical. You might be inclined to go, okay, that's one verse. That's actually four words of one verse. Can you do a little better than that this morning? And so the answer is yes. I actually want to take you on a tear through the Old and New Testament and show you that God has been on a mission for his own glory from the very beginning up until now. Um, I'm only going to give you a handful of verses. I've got 17 in my notes I'm not going to use all of those. And there are more than 17 passages of Scripture that argue for God's ultimate aim at self-glorification. If you go to the Old Testament, we see, uh, according to Isaiah 49.3, that God called Israel for his glory. It says this, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. That God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. That that was the purpose, ultimately, of the exodus. Look at Psalm 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them. Why? For his name's sake, 
that he might make known his mighty power. That God spared Israel in the wilderness for his glory. Ezekiel 20 verse 13 says this, But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. That God gave Israel the promised land ultimately for the glory of his name. 2 Samuel 7.23 says this, And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. That God drove out the other nations and gave Israel the promised land ultimately in order to make himself a name. And lastly, in the Old Testament, God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. According to Ezekiel 36, we're told this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act and bring you out of exile, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations to which you came. goes on to say, And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. And if we fast forward into the New Testament, we see much of the same. That God instructs you and I as the church to do everything for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all. Why? What's the motive? Do it to the glory of God, for the glory of God is at stake. God tells us to serve in a way that brings him glory. 1 Peter 4.11, whoever serves, let him do it as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Or perhaps this is a more familiar verse. Matthew 5.16 says it this way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is coming again. His second coming is for the purpose of self-glorification. It says it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, those who don't love and follow Jesus, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And lastly, the Bible bookends in Revelation 21:23. James shared this with us as we opened up this morning that in the new Jerusalem, the glory of God will replace the sun itself. It says it this way, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. What is the mission of God? What is God after? What is God ultimately about? Answer, God ultimately is all about God. That the centerpiece of the Bible is God. The centerpiece of human history is God. The centerpiece of the universe is God. That ultimately God forgives our sins. He leads us. He restores us. He shepherds us. He protects us. And he does it ultimately with the purpose of his own glory. Now again, the natural man hates this idea. The God-centeredness of God. We want this story to ultimately be about us. 
For some of us, this is a devastating blow that we're not the primary character in human history. And so you might be inclined to push back on this idea, even seeing it tattooed across the pages of Scripture. So let me approach this from a different angle. Let me, let me address some objections that might be in your mind or your heart this morning as we engage these things. Um, number one, seeking one's own glory, some would say, seems needy and weak. Right? We, you and I actually care how many likes we get on Facebook. Let's be honest. We do. We care if people retweet our tweets. And, and we're super weird about it, are we not? Because what we'll do is we'll take a picture of that slice of pizza that we ate for dinner and then we'll Photoshop it. We'll bring in an editor and we'll give it a sepia color tone or we'll crop out all the weird things around it so that it's perfectly um, placed. And then we'll post it to Facebook and then we'll watch. We'll track it to see how many people like our Photoshop slice of pizza that is not even the real piece of pizza that we ended up putting in our mouths. We all do this if you're on social media. And we have these certain metrics that really get our hearts going, right? For me, it's 100 likes. I don't know what that is for you, but, but when I get up to like 75, I'm thinking, we can do this, man. Like, this one might actually, this one might get there. And then I get to 85, and my heart starts getting a little bit, you know, racier as, as I'm engaging this thing. And then 95, I'm, I'm watching it literally every two minutes because we all know that when you get to 100 likes on that Photoshop piece of food that you ate, that that validates your existence, that all of a sudden there's great approval for you in the universe. That's the world that we live in. And so we then look at God and we go, for you to ultimately be about your own glory must mean that you're quite needy and weak. It must mean that you're like me. Doesn't that make God seem deeply insecure that he would be about his own glory? Is God in desperate need of a like or a retweet might be a way that we could ask it. And according to the Bible, I think the answer is a resounding no, Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25 say this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Psalm chapter 50, verses 10 through 12, put it this way. God says, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, God says, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God is not needy. He's not dependent upon his creation. He didn't make us because he was lonely. There's been an intra-Trinitarian love going on between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before any of us were created. Before the foundations of the world, there was a love taking place between the three persons of the one Trinitarian God that was sufficient for all time. God's not looking at us going, I made you because I, I'm dependent upon your approval. That's not how God operates. He's quite different than you and I. That to make himself the point, again, to make himself the center doesn't make God needy or weak. It actually authenticates that he's God, that he's not an idolater. Another objection might be this. This might be where you're coming from. You might think that seeking one's own glory doesn't seem very loving, right? I mean, we've all been around people who are self-enamored. They're not fun to be around, are they? People who are constantly seeking glory and making the story about them. Every time you get in a room with them, it's, it's all about them. There's no reciprocation of what's going on in your life. We, we tend to run from people like that rather than welcome them into our lives. In fact, the Bible itself says According to 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love seeks not its 
own. So how in the world can God be loving if his ultimate goal is to be glorified and praised? How is that possible? Let me attempt to answer that in two ways. Number one, God must be for himself if he is to be for us. Okay? Again, if God made anything other than himself the center of the universe, he's an idolater, and an idolater can't possibly redeem us from our sins. We're, we're left hopeless. Everything we believe is then in vain, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. The, the God-centeredness of God actually authenticates that he is God and that he can enter in and do something about the terrible plight that we put ourselves in by way of our own sin and, and treason against him. All right, that would be one way to come at it. Another way would be to say this, that, that our praising of God actually completes our joy. Um, there's nothing novel about what I'm saying this morning, just so you know. Uh, I'm completely robbing guys like John Piper, C.S. Lewis, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and the list goes on and on. Those guys robbed early church fathers, and, and we can go all the way back to the beginning of articulated theology and, and biblical doctrine. C.S. Lewis really struggled with this. With this idea that God would say, praise me, praise me, just make much of me, make me the center. And so in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, this is what he says in terms of how he came to grips with this, this idea. He says, the world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, the, the next two are a little weird, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and, and scholars, Lewis says. He goes on to say, My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. In other words, what you love, what you value, you can't help but articulate vocally. You can't help but praise those things. Your favorite sports team, if you're a college football fan, I guarantee you, you're going to vocalize who you're for in the coming weeks. You're not going to be able to help it. There's something about articulating it that just completes the joy in your heart that wells up about that thing that you delight in. The same is true about spouses and kids. And if you love your job, maybe your job, your friends, and the list goes on. The things we delight in, the things we love, are the things we can't help but vocalize our adoration for. And so the question becomes, why would it be any different with God? Lewis goes on to say, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. That, that we must articulate with our voices that which we love. Otherwise, Lewis says, our joy is left incomplete. That there's joy in the expressing. There's joy in the telling. We all know this to be true. This should resonate with everyone in the room. As you've experienced things that bring you great joy, you have to tell other people about them. And so the argument goes like this. How unloving of God would it be to deny us the praising of the object of greatest value in all of the universe, namely himself? 
Thus, it's unbelievably loving for God to make it his aim to receive our praises. That it's in our praising of him that our joy is made complete. That his glory and our joy are not at odds with one another. Those two run like parallel train tracks. Another reason that you might bristle at this kind of articulating of a Christian worldview is that, very simply, we're glory thieves. That Going back to the very beginning, in Genesis 3, when everything came unraveled, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they, they sought the throne of God. They sought the scepter. They sought the crown. They sought the robe. They sought to dethrone God, which is an act of cosmic treason, ultimately. The problem is that you can't do that. You can't dethrone God. And in fact, to attempt to do, th- do so puts you in the courtroom of God, the cosmic courtroom of God, guilty before him seeking to usurp his authority and power. And such an infinitely heinous crime against an infinitely holy God is deserving of an infinitely horrific punishment, which is why the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We understand treason in human language. If someone commits treason against our very country, they're likely going to experience capital punishment. The same is true in the cosmic courtroom of God. You can't seek to usurp the throne of God and get away with it. And that's why all human beings die a physical death. If Jesus doesn't return first, we're all going to die a physical death. And yet we, we have this spiritual death that comes into play as well, that relationally the umbilical cord between us and God has been severed. It's been snipped. And if we die that physical death with that spiritual death in place, we then experience a third form of death, eternal death, apart from God and his blessing. And the most devastating thing, and we have such a hard time getting it through our heads in the Bible Belt, in this moralistic subculture, is that a glory thief can't put back what they've stolen. You can't do enough good to to turn that back around in such a way that God then must look upon you favorably and go, you're on my team now. You're one of the good guys. You've managed to, to flip the script on me. You tried to take my throne, but you did all these little good things along the way, and that makes up for it, so now you're good to go with me. We can't bridge that gap between our sin and God's holiness. It's impossible to bridge, and that's why Jesus bridged the gap for us, that God entered into human history, the second person of the Godhead, eternal God, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, thus fully man, conceived by the Holy Spirit, thus fully God, lived the life that you and I could never live, a perfect sinless life. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins, that our sins were put upon Jesus, and he was punished in our place. It's what Luther calls the great exchange. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, conquering our great enemies of sin and death. And in doing so, he revealed that the Father was pleased with his payment in full for our sins. For those who will turn from sin and self and turn and trust in the person and work of Jesus, you will be freed from the empty chase of being the center, the empty chase of self-exaltation. And to the redeemed in the room, if you're a Christian, that's the old self that must continually be put to death, the self-exalting self, which is really hard because, moving into my fourth point, we live in a culture that says you are absolutely the point. Every marketing scheme, every commercial that you see when you turn on your favorite shows says it's all about you. You're entitled to this. You're the king. You're the queen of your kingdom, and you need this in order to make a name for yourself, in order to make your kingdom better. And out of fear of decline, sadly, even churches have caved and said it's all about you, so come consume here. To be very clear, I'd rather this church just shut down than that ever become our motto. 
Our motto is not, nor will it ever be as long as I'm here. It's all about you. Come consume here. Rather, our motto is it's all about Jesus, so come contribute here. Come be spent for the glory of God as you join with his people. That God is ultimately about God. He's in a relentless pursuit of his own glory, and this is actually good news. That if you found out that this whole thing was about you, you'd like it for a second, and then you'd be completely devastated. That no one goes to the beach and, and stands over this vast stretch of waters and looks out on its greatness and goes, man, I'm something else. Like, you, you don't do that. You weren't designed to do that. You were designed to bask in the glory of something bigger than you. You were designed to, to bask in the grandeur and glory of the God who designed you. You're meant to be overwhelmed with his glory. You're meant to feel small, and that's actually a good thing, that we were created to be overwhelmed by God, that if heaven were a hall of mirrors, Piper uh, has eloquently said, you'd be sorely disappointed. But going back to last week's sermon on Revelation 4, the good news is that heaven will not be a hall of mirrors, that God's throne and God himself will be the centerpiece of heaven forever, and we will enjoy making much of him and being overwhelmed by his splendor. All right, now let's bring the plane down in altitude for a second because the question begs to be answered, what in the world does this have to do with the church? I mean, how do you connect those, those dots? If God is after a relentless pursuit of his own glory, and I believe he is, I'm seeking to argue that this morning, we have to acknowledge that he's, he's gone after that in a number of ways, right? So creation in all of its grandeur brings glory to God. Galaxies and solar systems bring glory to God. Black holes and supernovas and comets bring glory to God. The sun, the moon, the stars bring glory to God. The mountains and the valleys and the rivers and the oceans bring glory to God. Creatures of all shapes and sizes bring glory to God, including you and me as his image bearers. And the same thing could be said for the most intricate of God's designs, that um, the very way that a baby is formed in his or her mother's womb brings glory to God in the beauty and intricacy of that. That, that the way that, and this is gross, but the way the human ear makes wax in order to protect the eardrum from dust and dirt and other foreign objects brings glory to God. Or how about blood clotting? This is crazy. The fact that when a blood vessel is injured, platelets begin to adhere to the injured vessel and release chemicals to call other platelets to the party. Hey, you guys need to come be a part of this. We can all come together, and they do so, and they work together to stop the bleeding and to form a clot over the injury, which, by the way, after the injury is healed, the clot goes away. That's nuts. Or how about the fact that you don't even have to think about breathing? You just do it. That brings glory to God. Creation in all of its grandeur sings of the glory of God, as well as the, the smallest and most intricate of his designs. Yet, I would argue that nothing in all of creation, from the, the largest supernova to, to the smallest design of the human body, is the high point of God's glory on display in human history, in the universe. That the point and place in human history where we see the glory of God most surely on display is at the cross of Calvary. That the cross is the apex of God's glory. How do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us so. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we're told this. 
that even before the foundations of the world, everything was pointing to Calvary. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That ultimately, Paul says, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan to redeem mankind. And he says that, that he had this plan in place for the praise of the glory of his grace, that God chose us in Christ so that his glory, shining most brightly in his grace, might be praised. 2 Timothy 1.9 says it this way, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That you might say it this way, the cross wasn't plan B. That God in Genesis 3 didn't look at at everything coming unraveled in the wake of sin, entering the story, and, and go, uh-oh, I've, I've got to now establish a plan to redeem mankind. But rather, according to Paul in 2 Timothy 1.9, the grace of God was ours before the clock of human history started ticking. That, that the gospel, you, you could define it as love before time began. That's how God feels about you. And lastly, let me take you to Revelation 13.8. We've been in this book for a while now. You might as well stay, stick around another week. It says this, All who dwell on earth will worship it, namely the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. Translation, before there was any sin to die for, God planned that his son would die for sinners. That the Apostle John is telling us that there's a book that existed before the foundation of the world, before any of this grandeur, before any of these intricate designs were created by God. And that book was known as the book of life of the Lamb, Jesus, capital L, that was slain. That before time began, the death of God the Son was the plan that God had in mind that the cross would be the apex of human history from before anything was established and created. Everything was looking forward to that moment in human history. That's why when you pick up your Bible, it's not a bunch of piecemeal stories where you're, you're intended to emulate the, the various characters in those stories. It's ultimately one redemptive meta-narrative that points to Jesus as the hero from start to finish. That's why since the death of Jesus, everything has looked back to that moment in human history. So that the cross is the centerpiece of the glory of God because it reveals his grace most assuredly which will be praised for an eternity by you and me, followers of Jesus. So going back to the question, why church? Answer, God purposed us. He has purposed us to point people to the apex of his glory, namely the cross. That's why you and I are here. That's why we're doing this thing. He has purposed us as his bride, the church, to cause people to look at the groom, Jesus, and to bask like you do when you stand at the edge of the ocean in all of its grandeur. That's why you're here. When people look at the church, they're meant to see the king who purchased her with his blood. That we exist to reflect the glory of God to the world around us. See, here's the problem for most of us. Most of us need a Copernican revolution. That Going back to 1543, Nicholas Copernicus presented an idea that absolutely revolutionized our understanding of the universe. Before he came along, we thought that the earth was the center of the universe, the, the stationary, non-moving center, and that the sun and all the other planets revolved around the earth, which makes sense, right? Because our planet has life on it. We must be the center. We, we must be the point of all of this. 
And yet Copernicus argued that no, it's actually the sun that sits at the center of the solar system. And planet Earth, along with all the other planets, revolve around the sun. And I would argue that most people on planet Earth, and, and even many in the church, deeply need a Copernican revolution. That, that we think the world revolves around us. We think we're the sun. We think we're ultimately the point. We think we're ultimately the center. That human history, uh, if you could uh, paint a picture of it being a divine drama and, and we're standing on the stage, all of human history has been waiting for me to show up. Like, I'm the main act in this play. We think that way. We're, we're so enamored with ourselves that we think that we're the main character and, and everything has been waiting and, and, and building up to this culminating point where we're now here, so let's do this thing. And yet nothing could be further from the truth that you're not the sun, I'm not the sun, Jesus is the sun. You and I get to be the moon and that is unbelievably freeing. It frees you from the empty chase of self-exaltation, that in the same way that the moon has been perfectly positioned to reflect the sun's light, you and I have been perfectly positioned to reflect the glory of God. That according to Acts chapter 17, God has actually determined the times and the boundaries of your dwelling place. That God has you at this moment in human history, August 2015, in this place on planet Earth, southwest Atlanta, the reason he has you right here and right now is to be the moon and reflect the glory of the sun in a unique way that no other person can possibly do so. You're in a particular workplace. You're in a particular neighborhood. You're in a particular friend group. You have particular family members, none of which do I have. And so you are uniquely designed and established at this point in this place in human history to reflect God in a way that no one else possibly can that's unbelievable purpose, right? That you get to point people to the center. You, you get to point people to the apex of God's glory on display. You get to point people to Jesus and his cross. And the best way to do that, to reflect the glory of the Son, I believe, is by growing in our understanding and experience of the gospel of God, the community of God, and the mission of God, which is why we're going to unpack those things for the next Three weeks. We're going to spend three weeks growing in our understanding, ultimately, of how to reflect God's glory and to participate in his great mission and to experience the freedom that comes when, when we release our grip on having to be the center of everything and, and acknowledging that we get to be a part of this cosmic level vision of God's purpose for our lives as it works its way down into our hearts. In a moment, we're going to take communion if you're a Christian, this meal is for you. We take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. We do so as a collective declaration of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We proclaim that until his second coming. And so we take communion every week here. We, we want to be about regularly proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so if you're a Christian, this meal is for you. As, as you come this morning, take the bread and dip it in the cup, just just marvel for a moment at the fact that God loved you before time began. That's unbelievable. And that he's invited you into this mission of, of participating in making much of him and enjoying uh, seeing your joy made complete as you praise him and call others to do the same. That God saved you 
Not so that you could be the center, but so that you and I could be freed from trying to be the center and could actually enjoy making much of him as the center. If you're not a Christian this morning, I'd love to connect with you, talk more about this stuff. My hope, very simply, is that I painted a picture of a God that's big enough that you could actually bend your knee to um, if you've never experienced that God before. And, And you can do that now. You can bend your knee to him now as Savior and King. You can look to Jesus and cry out for salvation even now as you sit in your very seat. You can be freed from the empty chase of self-exaltation. You can be freed from the empty chase of self-salvation, trying to do enough good to, to right the wrongs in your life by simply looking to Christ and his cross. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.